Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. Today, we're continuing our discussion of 99 Bottles by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen, and we're going to be looking at section 1.2, Judging Code. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So how did you find the reading this week, Nadia? It was good. Um, I use Rubocop a lot when I do development. And so it was interesting having a closer look at what each of those different code metrics mean. The ones that I'm often told off for not having satisfied. So that was that was good. What about you? Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, a lot of the coding I do nowadays is just me coding on the CodeNubi platform and I'm the only developer. So... I've been pretty lax about these kinds of things. So it was a really good reminder of, oh, there are metrics and there are tools. And there's specifically that there are tools built on math and research and not just kind of, you know, general opinions. Uh, And it was just, it was a good reminder of that world and that incorporating that can be very helpful when we code. Cool. Shall we dig into the text? Let's do it. So at this point in the book, We've looked at four different solutions to the 99 bottles of beer problem. And if you've been good, you've also got a fifth solution, which is your own one. And we're asked to think about which one is the best. So at this point, Sandy and Katrina are pointing out that day to day, we're always judging code, whether it's good code or bad code. And we always aim to write good code. And we tend to have a gut feel where we finish of whether we think we've reached that or not. And in this section, Sandy and Katrina say that ideally we want to know with explicit and quantifiable measures whether our code is good or not and how do we even begin to work out what those measures would be. Yes, and it's so nice because I think that we're, even if you're a more beginner programmer, you still slowly develop that gut and you have that reaction. You look at things, you go, like, oh, that, that doesn't feel quite right. So now we get to dig into, well, how do we make it feel right? And what does feel right even mean? And yeah, the rest of this chapter is going to be really, really awesome. So section 1.2.1 is called Evaluating Code Based on Opinion. And it starts by saying, you'd think that by now there would exist a universally agreed upon definition of good code that could unambiguously guide our programming behavior. And I read that and I thought, given all the discussions I've had with various developers and programmers and how all the all the opinions and judgments that people are always throwing around, I'm not surprised that we've not come to a universally agreed upon definition. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure we ever will. Yeah, and it really reminded me of just, especially in the in the first year, I think, that I first started to code, I would get really excited about a possible universal metric, and then I would read another programmer or hear another programmer go, oh, no, that's total garbage, you know, and just, like, so easily <laughs> dismiss that other thing, and I would just go, oh, man, I thought I found, like, my one metric. So, yeah, just this idea that we develop metrics and ideas, but you know, it's kind of hard to get away from the opinion of things and people definitely have their own opinions. The key takeaway in in this section when Sandy could you talk about opinion is that we have no shortage of opinions, but there is a clear shortage in terms of how we get to that good code. So there are some quotes here where it says, clean code is full of crisp abstractions. 
or code should be elegant and efficient Mm -hmm. or clean code was written by someone who cares that last one by michael feathers writer of working effectively with legacy code and uh, and we hear these things and we go yeah that sounds about right but when we sit down to write code how do we how do we get there how what code written by someone who cares what's that process like from the beginning to the end yeah yeah how do i make my abstractions crispier yeah how do we do that exactly and this is where sandy and katrina start moving towards this idea of facts and metrics and reading this section it got me thinking about people talk a lot these days about making decisions backed by data and Mm -hmm. i felt like this was the sort of parallel for code which is well is this good code well let's look at certain quantifiable metrics and see what they have to say yes and what i also found interesting in this section was the difference between measures and metrics which, frankly, I, I've never really thought about that much. And there's a line that says that measures that rise to become metrics are backed by research and has stood the test of time. So this idea that we're always measuring, right? We can measure how many lines of code we have, how long it took us to write things. But in this context, they graduate, they grow up to be metrics when we actually have a body of data and research to support it. So now we're going to look at three specific types of metrics, and they are source lines of code, cyclomatic complexity, and ABC. So do you want to tell us about source lines of code, Saron? Okay, so for source lines of code, when I first looked at this, I, I assumed we were talking about the number of lines of code, right? Just looking at the total volume and saying, well, there's a lot of code here, therefore let's give it some type of a rating. And when we read it, it seemed a little more complex than that because it talks about counting the lines of code of existing projects of which effort total effort is known and then based on that project looking at the new project and seeing which one is very close to that old project and then running a cost estimation model to make the prediction and so i think the idea of this is to figure out what is the cost of developing applications, and I assume cost is talking about time, but the yeah. part that I'm, is, is that kind of what you got from it too? Yeah, time, number of resources, number of developers, that sort of thing. Yeah, but the part that I'm not clear on is when we talk about looking at total effort that is known, what is the total effort? Like what is, how do we, because the whole point of metrics and measuring things and all that is to be able to quantify stuff, right? So how are we quantifying total effort so there's not much here when i read it (laughs) i was thinking that that referred to so you have some projects and you know that you perhaps staffed four developers on it and it took two months and you've got this other project that you that you're about to do that is similar to the existing one so using the source lines of code you can say yes this is probably going to cost me for developers for two months, given the similarities mm-hmm. to this existing project. That's what I understood from it in terms of predicting the development effort. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like for this to be useful, or for me for me to just have like a, a visual idea of what this what this looks like, I think I would need to have a better understanding of what that effort is. And you know, and, and even when we're talking about that effort, right, is is the thing that matters the time that it took? Is it the number of people? Is one better than the other? Uh, Because then there's also effort in terms of money, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Are we talking about like two 
top super expensive senior developers? Are we talking about mid-level, beginner? You know, kind of, there's so many different ways to figure out effort and the amount of effort that you want to consume. So I'd, I'd be really curious to see how, what those formulas actually look like and what those different variables are. I suspect that it would vary across different organizations. Mm-hmm. They yeah. will have their own way of measuring measuring that sort of stuff and then staffing the projects. Right. And so we know that for lines of code, for this metric, the main thing is really the size of the application. That's the, the main thing that we're taking a look at. Uh, and the thing that we're not taking a look at is just organization and how the code is actually put together and if it's well-designed and all that. So using the source lines of code metric alone is not necessarily a good predictor of how of the quality level of your code right then we have cyclometric complexity and we were looking at whether this does any better than source lines of code in terms of predicting code quality so this one is backed by an academic paper so it's serious stuff written <laughs> in 1976 by a thomas j mccabe the paper's called a complexity measure and cyclomatic, oh, I can't say that word, cyclomatic complexity is an algorithm that counts the number of unique execution paths through a body of source code. So it's looking at all the different possible routes where you could end up. So if you're following a path, it's like branching out all the different routes and seeing how, where you could end up. So if you've got a conditional, a deeply nested one, you'd get a very high score. And if you have no conditionals, then it's a path. Of, it's, 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 there's one path, so it's a score of zero. Yes. And I just love the name cyclomatic complexity. It's not, and it's, it sounds really cool when you say it too with your accent. It sounds super, super fancy. Why, thank you. Cyclomatic. Oh, I can't say it. Cyclomatic <laughs> complexity. I was trying to too show off. Too much pressure. Too much pressure. I was to show off. It failed. <laughs> right. So this is more useful than source lines of code for a couple of reasons. It gives you a way that you can compare code. Like you have a number. You can attach a number to it where you, where you can say, well, this one has a cyclomatic complexity of five. This one has a cyclomatic complexity of zero. So I'm liking the latter one, for example. However, I guess you could say that with source lines of code, you can say this one seems to be cheaper, require less effort. So maybe I want to do that mm. if, if budget is my concern. Again, it's really, it's tricky to work out how you're comparing code with the source lines of code. Whereas with this one, you can take a hunch that if the com- the cyclomatic complexity is less, then it's probably better quality code. Mm-hmm. And then there's this idea of having a threshold on your complexity. So this was familiar to me because with Rubocop, it has a certain limit on how much cyclomatic complexity is allowed in, in a method. And I think... I think the one I have is 15. I could be making that up, but I'm pretty sure if I have a cyclomatic complexity over 15 or something like that, it's like, no, you cannot push this code. And mm-hmm. so um, so this is saying how you can say, well, I want to set a standard and I want all the developers programming on this app to not exceed that standard. And you can do things like, like I said, prevent people from pushing code to production if it has too much complexity in it. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, very interesting, is checking that you've written enough tests. So with testing, you want to cover all of the cases. And say you have four different 
routes where you could where you could end up going down but you only have three tests then this is a way of looking at cyclomatic complexity as a way of checking that you've co- whether you've covered all of the possible cases or not and so it's a way of pointing out that you might need to add some more test cases yes and i really like that um it focuses on the difficult to test or maintain because it has an element of I don't say future proofing, but you know it does it does make us think a little bit past our immediate purpose and and kind of what we're doing right now. And when we were looking at the what was it the four different ways to solve the ninety nine bottles problem earlier and in previous episodes, one of the big things was just focusing on making it look good now and making sure that it works now and making sure it's readable. And the cyclomatic complexity does that too, but also hints at you know in the future. How will this code perform? Right. And what I like about the testing case is that as well as helping you cover all the bases, if it's a case where it, it it's shown that you haven't written enough tests and then you're going away and writing those tests, you might start thinking, wait a minute, this is harder than it needs to be. I'm having to write 10 different test cases. Perhaps the code has a problem. So I like that it forces you to check it the other way as well. It's not just, oh, I need to write eight mm-hmm. more tests. It's like... Hmm, why do I need to write this many tests? Maybe this code is more complex than mm-hmm. it needs to be. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. But then we talk about how even though it sounds really great, it is. it also forces us to see our code through a pretty narrow lens, which is kind of like my, my immediate reaction when I saw the threshold part. I was like, oh, that could be cool. But man, that's really strict too, <laughs> especially if it's not... You know, if it's not a, a human or, you know, a fellow programmer looking at it and taking in that full context, just having a number and saying, if you, you know, don't hit this threshold or, you know, or go past it, then you are not allowed to put it. It just felt very, very strict. And so we move into our third type of metric called ABC metric, which is assignments, branches, and conditions. And here it has a lot of the benefits of the cyclomatic complexity but uh, psychomatic complexity doesn't take absolutely everything into account. And this one takes a couple more things, namely assignments, branches, and conditions. So this one was created in 1997 by Jerry Fitzpatrick, who published an article called Applying the ABC Metrics to C, C++, and Java. So it was 21 years after the psychomatic complexity uh, had initially been unveiled. And so here we talk about assignments, which is looking at variable assignments, branches, which is um, not branches of like if else statements, but branches of control. And then we have conditions, which looks at our conditional logic. Yes. So Fitzpatrick himself says that the ABC metric is essentially a measure of size. Because it's all about counts. And you mentioned how with cyclomatic complexity, you found it strange because there was a threshold on it. Well, the same happens with ABC so within Rubocop as well there's a threshold on ABC so sometimes you can't push your code because it's like no you've reached the ABC threshold mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting because as a developer when you're faced with a Rubocop saying no this is not right it is actually up to you to go look at that code and decide okay is it worth me making this like editing this code so that it reaches a threshold or is it or is this case is this 
a case that it's okay that I've gone over this condition and the cost of trying to change this now isn't worth it. And so let me disable Rubocop on this method. And often you find that it's worth trying to stick within certain limits because you, you, you need to draw a line somewhere and it can be helpful to think about, well, I probably could make this better. So let me give it a go. But there are cases where you make a judgment and you say it's not worth my time now, or it's not given this special case, it's okay, it's okay that this has gone over this threshold. So you still have that element of having to make, like to take the context into account and make your own decision. And I think it is important mm-hmm. that you always do that and you don't just blindly try and right, follow right. the rules because sometimes you can end up blindly following the rules and then making code. If we, if we think back to the, um, if we think back to the, um, the solution for 99 bottles that we discussed last week that had done the wrong, wrongest abstractions sometimes if you mm-hmm. blindly follow you know rubocop to try and get your code to pass all the tests um the metrics test that is then you could find yourself making code that's ultimately less maintainable and more complex to read because you've mm-hmm. made the wrong abstraction so it's important that you still think critically about what these tools are asking you to do yep so yeah you mentioned that it's about size and it is and say and katrina say that it's fine if you want to think about it as reflecting cognitive size instead of just the physical size and the source lines of code specifically is just about you know how many lines of code are there uh and the abc is that but looking at kind of what you're doing within the lines of code themselves and putting a size and a number and of course a threshold on that as well and one of the most popular tools for generating these abc scores for ruby is called flog which is created by Ryan Davis. And it's a ABC-ish rather than a strictly ABC um, tool. But uh, I know that it's it's very, very popular and we're going to be using this tool throughout the rest of the book so we can see what our what our flog score, I guess. It sounds so weird to say that. <laughs> what our flog score is. <laughs> and we can take a look and see how we measure up on the different metrics. Uh, let's look at how our different, our four different solutions, we have incomprehensibly concise, speculatively general, concretely abstract, and shameless green. Let's look at how they measure up in our, I guess really it's our, it's three metrics, but one of them is our lines of code. One is our flog total. And then there's a specific flog score on the worst part of the code that, uh, you know, just wasn't, wasn't very, very high quality. So if we look at that, we can, and it's actually really nice because they lay it out in a table, but then they lay it out in a very nice um, graph too. So you can kind of compare very quickly. So Concretely Abstract has the highest score for our SLOC, our source lines of code, which isn't surprising because if we remember, that was the one that had all those really small methods and all those very, very small abstractions and we were very confused very quickly. So that one had the highest number of lines of code, but it also had the lowest worst bit score, which is also not very surprising because it had such small methods. Mm -hmm. So because it abstracted to such a a level where, I think if I remember this correctly, we only had maybe two methods that had more than two lines of code. Um, You know, our worst and and longest method just simply wasn't that bad because there were so many of them. Right. And at this point, you know, Sana and Katrina say that these metrics don't really tell you the whole story because you can't tell just from looking at this that the, the problem with concretely abstract is that 
all the wrong abstractions were made and the use of we had poor names and so it wasn't easy to maintain or change change that code in the future yes exactly another interesting point in this graph is that you can see that incomprehensibly concise as expected has the lower source lines of code but relative to the other solutions it's got a very high flock score so that shows that it's very complicated to work out what's going on even though there aren't that many lines of code hence not having that many lines of code doesn't tell you again anything about whether that code is easy to understand or maintain or how simple or easy it is and I think if you remember from a couple of episodes ago when I think Saron read the whole thing for us we saw just how hard it was to get a grasp of what was going on and we weren't even confident that it did produce 99 bottles (laughs) (laughs) yes and it was interesting because when I first looked at this chart I was wondering how I wonder how much the different metrics will correlate you know how much is is one will one metric end up being just as good as any other one right if they all kind of end up with the same score and i'm i'm pleasantly surprised to find out that it doesn't that each metric that we talked about is slightly different tells a slightly different story but after reading the code itself and taking a look at it understanding what it's doing the different metrics together paint a pretty good picture of how we felt about the code Yes, I think I think that's a really key point. This idea that you can look at one particular bit of code and a and a, a number, and and that is really hard to contextualize what that means. And I think that that gets at what your issue was earlier when we were talking about this idea of thresholds. But when you start comparing things, then it becomes way easier to to make a judgment on whether a solution is better than another one or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the summary coming to the end of this section is that looking at Shameless Green, it's got the lowest flock score, the second lowest lines of code, and the second lowest worst bit score. So if you're looking to write simple, straightforward code, then the metrics say Shameless Green is the best. There's a bit in the in the summary of this chapter, which I've highlighted, and it says, infinitely experienced programmers do not write infinitely complex code. They write code mm-hmm. that's blindingly simple. And I love that. It's not just experienced programmers. We're talking about infinitely experienced programs. So they've gone past (laughs) the experience level and they're on another level. And it's funny because talking about Shameless Green last week, there was a lot about, oh, it's embarrassingly simple. And I think it's about when you've got that, you're so experienced that you've got that confidence that you know when Shameless Green is all you need and you're prioritizing being able to understand the code rather than thinking about that future that we don't know whether it's going to come or not and having the confidence to just say yeah this is enough for now that's the really the really powerful bit another thing that i want to point out is this book is largely about being able to make good decisions and knowing what questions to ask and what factors to consider as we code and another great thing about the shameless green is that it was really fast to write Right. Like when you were because you think your solution was closest to that uh, between the two of us. And when, you know, when we were talking about it, I felt like that solution was the easiest and the least cognitive load for you to actually create and be done with. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot of like, hmm, let me think about like, how would I have, you know, you weren't kind of taking all that Mm -hmm. on. So it seemed like speed in terms of the process of creation was optimal as well. Was that true in your case? Yeah, because I wasn't thinking about 
like you said, any form of abstraction. I was just like, well, if this case and this case, if this case and that case, and that's why it felt it felt really basic. It felt silly. Mm-hmm. It felt like <laughs> I should be doing something more complex than this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so Sandy and Katrina point out that although it's fast and it's simple and it's readable, and you pointed this out too, we are prioritizing our ability to understand over our ability to change it very quickly. And so and so in future sections, we're going to look at, well, what happens when we take this shameless screen and we try to change it? What happens when someone stops by our desk and says, I have a request and I need to add this new feature and make it operate just a little bit differently? How does that change our code? So we have that to look forward to in future sections. But next week, we are going to look at testing and how we can test drive shameless screen. Yay. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. So we want to know, how do you feel about metrics? Do you trust them? Do you use them? Are they helpful to you? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio. Yay, the Cheerio is back. Awesome.